0: Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. For those not versed in British psychedelic and prog rock, The Division Bell is the 14th and final Pink Floyd album recorded before the band would take a decades-long hiatus. For those not fully versed in modern classic cocktails... The division bell is Phil Ward's quasi-riff on the last word that would debut on the opening menu of his seminal mezcal bar, MyOL, in 2009. Now, for those who are literate in contemporary cocktail culture, Phil's name most definitely rings out. He rose to head bartender at New York's Pegu Club, then led the bar team at Death & Co during what many might consider to be the years. He also co-owned and opened the forward-thinking and aforementioned Maya Well. And these days, you'll find him behind the stick at the industry, media and locals darling Long Island Bar. Honestly, I always thought that if and when we convinced this lovable curmudgeon to come on the show, I'd want to talk about cocktail creation, given his success rate in that field. But as you'll learn today, that would have been a very short conversation given Phil's unique approach to that process. This then is the tale of the fantastic Division Bell, but it's also an opportunity to get Phil's hot take on topics such as why it's harder to come up with cocktail names than the drinks themselves and how that can go wrong. Just how forward thinking it was to open an agave bar in the aughts and how and where to effectively deploy Luxardo. It's the man who pioneered the Mr. Potato Head approach to cocktail creation, and it's all right here on the Cocktail College Podcast. You can call me Captain Ahab listener. Okay. Because in the studio today we have a white whale so grand we never thought we'd land. (laughs) It's the Bill Belichick of cocktail creation. The big Bill Webernick of craft mixology. It's Phil Ward, everyone. Phil, welcome. Thank you. I'm really offended by the Bill Belichick thing. I thought that might be the one you wouldn't like. Yeah. Well, who was the second one? Big Bill Webernick. Who was that? As a pool guy, I thought you'd know. No. All right, I'm going to quote something here for you. Okay. So he's a former Canadian snooker and pool player, professionally. Okay. All right. This is his uh, Wikipedia entry. Okay. Webernick was noted for the copious amounts of alcohol he consumed before and during matches, Mm -hmm. at least six pints before a match, and then one pint for each frame. Hmm. In total, he drank between 40 and 50 pints of lager per day. That's pretty impressive. Webernick was reported to have successfully claimed the cost of six pints of lager before every match as a tax expense. Hmm. That's nice. No, but Phil, seriously, it is a pleasure. Uh, The only sad thing about having you in the studio today is we have to kill a long-running joke where it's been like, we love Phil. He's never going to join us in the show. Um, Sorry, I disappointed the office. (laughs) We can can make a new joke. We, (laughs) We can make a better joke, one that's actually funny. No, but seriously, your name comes up a lot on this show just in terms of you were there. You continue to be there, right? But you were there at the era when it feels like Everything was kicking off. Yeah. Something else, though, is just like the Belichick reference was tongue-in-cheek, but when it comes to creating cocktails, you've had a couple of bangers, more than a couple. Yeah.
1: Uh, Well, I really, I tell people I really just shit the bed because Mm I moved to New York in 2002, and I got a job at the Flatiron Lounge six weeks after they opened. And at that time, like really the only two bars, like good cocktail bars, were Angel Share And milk and honey Mm -hmm. and they were like a total of like 50 seats or something so i just got really lucky that Mm -hmm. i got into a bar where the cocktail scene was going to take off and kind of go to the masses more because that was that and employees only those were probably like the two first ones where you know it wasn't a secret door it wasn't hard to get in you could go with five people Mm -hmm. whenever you felt like they were big enough to accommodate that a lot of times um. So I just got really, really lucky about that, and then I was lucky too because Jolie was there, and I just learned so much from her. Mm-hmm. Like I still think about the first night I was bar backing with her and just watching her. You know, in Pittsburgh, I bartended at two different bars and bar backed somewhere, but they were just nothing bars. One was uh. Max and Irma's, which was basically like a TGI Friday's downtown. Yep. And then a coffee shop I worked at opened a bar in the back room, and I worked uh, the, the drum night. The, everybody came in with djembe's and shit, and I did <laughs> drum night. Nobody even actually drank. I probably drank way more than everybody there. <laughs> um, so I just got real lucky. So the first time I saw Julie bartending, I'm just like, what in the hell is this lady doing? She's putting like five, six things in that damn thing. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the shift, she's like, hey, you want to try a drink? How's like, yeah, I want to try a drink. And I want to say, I think as I remember it, it was definitely a vodka drink. I think it was either the Hawaiian iced tea or the uh, her apple martini. I had one of them and it just blew my mind. I was like, alcohol can taste this good? That's insane. Uh, That's wild. So I just, it really was like more luck. Yeah. And I'm sure
0: so many people have come to bars where you've worked over the years as well and had that same experience, right? As guests or maybe as people inspired to go into the industry being like, wow, this, you know,
1: Uh, maybe I'm sure they have. Yeah. Well, I mean, two of those people for sure are, uh, John Daragon and Don Lee. Mm -hmm. Like they always say that they basically learned how to bartend sitting at Pegu Club watching us bartend or whatever. Nice. And they were both still, uh, what was it? John's always been a tech guy what the hell did Don do? Don did some weird boring office thing too. And uh, <laughs> then they started bartending at uh, PDT
0: and then, you know. And so what were you, what were you planning just as a quick sidestep here though, but what were you planning when you moved to New York? Was it to work in the industry or was no. it like the classic uh, New York story? I came here, wanted to do something.
1: No, I uh, moved here by accident. I was 28 and I was bored out of my mind in Pittsburgh. So I saved up about eight, $9,000 through everything, but my books away. And then uh, I didn't know where to go. I'd never left the country except for uh, Canada in like the eighth, fifth grade, I think. And uh, my friends all knew that I was trying to go somewhere, this or that. And uh, there was a coffee shop in Pittsburgh, which was like basically my home. Uh, and Steve, Dave, the owner, one day I walked in, he was at the computer cause that was back when you'd like rent a computer to use for an hour and stuff like that. Yeah. And he, um, he had a flight to Rome pulled up. It was like round trip for like $400. I was like, I was so sick of thinking about it. I was like, okay, let's book it. So, uh, <laughs> so I flew to Rome and then, um, uh, about three and a half months in, I was in, uh, Athens. And I was taking the train to uh, Pirwa or whatever the name of the city is with all the ferries. Mm -hmm. So I get off the train, uh, book my ferry ticket, go to the ATM to get some cash out. And the balance was like, I think I had about two grand or something like that left. So I was like, okay, if I don't want to go home totally broke, it's probably time to go home. (laughs) So um, I did fly from Athens. And when I flew back, uh, it was like way cheaper to fly to New York than Pittsburgh, like astronomically. So, and my friend Friday Mickle lived in New York, so I figured before I went home and threw myself in front of a bus, I'd visit her for like a week. And in the course of the week, um, her friend Ricky Chips, who was in a punk rock band, Green name. Uh, yeah, he was going to Europe for a month a tour, and he was absolutely desperate to sublet his room in Bushwack. So he offered me a 30-day, $300 tryout in New York. So I was like, okay, I'll try it. And I've never left.
0: There we go. The rest yeah. is history, as, as we like to say. Yeah. So we're going to fast forward a couple of years then now just to, well, for, for for a second to today. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what it was, you know, if we had you in the studio, what we would cover. I always thought it would be the Oaxaca old-fashioned just because, I mean, I think that speaks to what I was saying up top about, you know, your cocktail creation, but also... It felt like to me, maybe that's wrong, that it also seemed to inspire this, everyone taking old fashions and being able to use that template, something that was very common at Death & Co at the time, right? Like taking the template of classics, very well known, maybe incorporating it in the name, but rethinking it.
1: I yeah. think that's so forward-thinking, like, yeah. looking back. Well, the thing about the Oaxaca and what we really started doing there a lot was splitting hairs, mm-hmm. you know, where you we started doing, like, different multiple multiple spirits, you know. Instead of making a Manhattan with just rye, you make it with, like, rye and maybe Calvados or something, you know. Nice. And it makes makes kind of a more complex base, you know. Yeah.
0: But instead, we are going to talk about the division bell today. Okay. Um A couple of reasons for that. One, it's just a drink that I've been... Drinking a lot of recently, making a mm-hmm. lot of at home. I also think the backstory is really fun. And I think too that it comes into this category of cocktails that like people don't realize that there are modern classics of a similar kind of construction, but that are um very well known. And I think that the Division Bell should be a better known drink. I think it's known by people who know drinks, but yeah. maybe not to the extent of like a paper plane or a yeah. naked and famous, which are yeah. drinks I would liken it to in some way yeah. so kick us off just tell us briefly for those who aren't familiar with okay. it what's in the division bell
1: all right the division bell uh it was one of the it was on the open it, it was on every menu at my well but I, uh i started it trying to do like a equal parts drink i had that in mind with four ingredients with four ingredients yeah pretty classic standard like uh spirit two uh two liqueurs and citrus so uh mezcal aperol Maraschino and uh, lime, but I quickly realized like the equal parts thing wasn't going to work. Yeah, so it wound up being uh, one and a half mezcal, three quarter apérol, three quarter lime. Originally, I did it with marasca, and we did three quarter marasca, but then marasca went off and disappeared for a while, so we Mm. started using luxardo, and then the luxardo we uh, I only did uh, a half half ounce of that because it's a little big bigger. yeah of, of a monster it really yeah it really does have kind of like an outsized presence in drinks when yeah. you get
0: beyond that yeah a lot of people ounce. always
1: try to talk about hating luxardo i think that people just don't know how to use it really it's really i i feel like i've had a lot of people tell me man you use luxardo really well and i think i do it's yeah it's it's knowing i guess yeah it's restraint right or it's yeah. like you or know just knowing thing. where to put it yeah uh, but yeah you usually don't need more than like a, a half ounce at mm-hmm. the most
0: and one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the Vision Bell too is that exact formula of four ingredient cocktail that's either equal parts or began as equal parts, but mm-hmm. then has since shifted. It's given us those two other great modern classics, like I said, the Paper Plane, um, Naked and Famous. I'm sure there's others out there too. Yeah,
1: um, based on the last word originally, or most of them inspired by that. Yeah. Yeah, the last word really brought that category back. Like the Corpse Reviver was like snooping around yep. a little bit. Uh and obviously you have the Blood and Sand, which I, most bartenders really detest. Mm-hmm. Uh I, I don't I think it's probably the only good drink with orange juice in it. It's actually Yeah, or Garibaldi maybe. Yeah, it's an all right drink. It's a lot better if you use uh PD Scotch and Punta Mez. That's good. It worked good with mezcal too. I did uh did a variation of that mm-hmm. on with mezcal there. Uh but yeah.
0: Anyway, it's interesting you say that too. I mean, this is a, this is another sidestep, but like, you could look to Scotch for maybe mezcal inspiration when it comes to thinking oh, of drinks. Oh, absolutely. totally. There's not that many classic Scotch drinks, especially no. peated,
1: right? No, there's really not. I don't think there's any classic peated one. No. But I love peat. I love uh, I like that. actually, that's you know, Sammy was really smart the way he used the uh, the peat and the penicillin. I yeah. do that. I do that all the time at uh. At the bar now. It's uh, it's the same thing. It's like maraschino. It's a monster, but it works really good. As like a seasoning or if you know how yeah. to use it. Yeah, exactly. But almost any scotch drink incorporating a little bit of uh, peat makes mm-hmm. it so much better. So the last word was super popular at that time. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to. Uh, the last word came on the scene in New York as far as I know. Uh, Brian Miller went to Seattle where he lived for a long time, and he liked drinking at the zig- zigzag bar where Murray Stenson worked. Mm-hmm. And when Brian came back from the trip, he when he went to Seattle, when we were all at Pegu Club, he came back with like, I think it was a cocktail, uh, like, uh, what are they called? Not the napkins, the the Uh-oh. coasters, like yeah. the, the cardboard coasters. He came back with like a stack of them <laughs> with all the drinks that uh, he learned from Murray. Really? And, and one of those drinks was the last word. And we just, it just blew our little pee holes. We're like, this is, we just started making it like crazy and people wow. started drinking it. So. I think Murray. It was. It's in uh, the only recipe book that I think it's in is the Stan Jones Bar Guide. Yeah, and then didn't you also have the Final Ward? Is that just this, the name, or uh, is that yeah a riff? Uh, no, that's. I, I hate the name of that. I would never name a drink after myself because it makes me want to kill myself. But uh, Audrey named it that, uh, and Sasha Petroski one time told me it was better than the original, so that was nice. Uh, but yeah, it was like classic Mister Potato Head, where you just—I uh, swapped out the gin and the lime for whiskey and lemon, and it was there one. We of, go. Yeah, it was one of my two biggest, uh, mes- or two biggest, like cocktail epiphany moments, mm-hmm. where I was like, "That is freaking crazy! That that is like, it's a totally different drink, but it was doing so
0: little." You know? Yeah, and and that's become such a f- common way, I think, for bartenders to think these days. Uh, thanks. I would say a lot to the work of people, you know, when you're at Death & Co. yourself and that yeah. sort of philosophy, the yeah. Mr. Potato yeah. Head. Yeah,
1: everybody knows I'm Mr. Potato Head. That's a, And I think that's, it's it's really, a, it makes sense because it's what I always tell people is every good cocktail, you know, the the template for that is a blueprint for other drinks. You can just take it apart and put it back together mm-hmm. in different ways, you know? So I want to talk more about the history of the
0: Division Bell, but we're on this t- subject now. Okay. So. What does go through your mind when you're trying to create a new drink? And what's it like these days where you've been in the industry for a long time and it like, you know, it's like Paul McCartney. How does he sit down with a guitar now yeah. and be like, where am I
1: getting inspiration from? Honestly, how have I not done it all? Honestly, it hasn't changed that much. I still all the time when I bartended, it's so much easier making drinks when you're, or creating drinks when you're bartending. You don't overthink it. I hate like you know when you when you have to make a whole menu mm-hmm. and then you go and you get all you have write down your different ideas and then you start doing it I I mean I can do it that way but pretty much almost every drink I've ever created probably is off the cuff like I have regulars my my regular guinea pigs who they come in I make them a different drink almost every time I make them variations of different drinks and then sometimes cuz it's like you know it's like if you if you take Good whiskey, good amaro, and good vermouth. If you mix them in almost any any proportions, it's going to be you know if you do like the classic two you know one and a half whiskey, one vermouth, three quarter amaro. It's always going to be a palatable, decent drink, right. you know. But uh, some of them, some of them just really pop, you know. So that's that's how it is when you make drinks like a. I don't know, like the other day I was making one of our uh, regulars, uh, Trevor, he's he's very, he's one of the people who he'll just be like, yeah, I kind of feel like this or like just make me something. Yeah. And uh, so I made him like something that I make, a lot of times I like doing like a Sazerac, but with like Calvados and a PD nice. uh, rinse, you know, so it's like smoked apple or whatever. So, you know, I've done that for a lot of people, but the other day I was like, oh, you know what? I'm going to split it. I split it with, uh, like, this is just how it works. I just build on ideas, you know, and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to split the calvados with Laird's bonded. So it has a little more backbone and the pretty apple. Nice. And then, uh, you know, I still did the pete. And at the last minute when I was about to do the, uh, about to do the the demerara for the little bit of sweet, it's like, you know what? I really should just use ginger syrup. Let's use ginger syrup. And it came out really good, you know. And that's just how, like, that's how I've been making drinks forever. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I've seen it in action as well. I've, I, I've been in the bar before, and I've been yeah. like, hey, I've got this apricot eau de vie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Can you do something with it? And oh, you yeah. pass, a, you know, within a minute, you come back and yeah. blow my mind with yeah. a very simple creation. I'm like, that's incredible.
1: Yeah, I still drink that sometimes. It's really good. So was <laughs>
0: that the first time you'd made it?
1: Yeah. And it was... it was uh apricot eau de vie all it said was it was apricot and champagne and champagne
0: that have champagne that you pour by the glass there yeah that's all it was phenomenal yeah try that listeners you know you get that one for free listeners yeah 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 (laughs) yeah um but yeah so back to the division bell here uh it goes on the bar menu in My Well opens in 2009. Uh, that sounds about right. I'm bad with dates. Tell us the story. Actually, okay. I was, I was going to tell you. I, okay. I was going to bring up okay. the story, but you tell the story. Yeah.
1: Uh, the Division Bell is one of my favorite children uh, because usually I don't remember when I create a drink or why I create a drink and things like that. Um, but the my Well menu, we basically hmm. finally got all the bar equipment in, got the booze in, basically had a functioning bar. That was like Friday. And we were planning to do, like, soft opening on Monday or Tuesday, and I didn't have any drinks yet. <laughs> so, Oh, my God. Uh, so I just went in there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday and just, just got wasted, you know, just making all the <laughs> drinks up. And anyways, uh, the Division Bell was one of them. And as I said, I started thinking about it as an equal parts drink, but that didn't work and uh, this and that. Uh, so anyways, worked out all the drinks, and I remember going to bed on, like, Sunday night or Monday night. And the thing I really, really hate is naming drinks. I hate naming drinks. I always say it's harder to name drinks than it is to like create drinks, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to bed and I'm just writing down like drink names that come to mind. Like I think there was like, uh, you know, the and I didn't have names for the drinks. I wasn't pairing the drinks. I was just coming up with drinks names. And like, I was like, uh, Loop Tonic, that's a good idea. Uh, the whoopsie daisy i was like that's good <laughs> what were some of the was other was that a Margarita riff uh the whoopsie daisy was like it uh, it was a really good drink it was like it was mezcal a little mezcal tequila it had pomegranate molasses in it i don't remember what else was in there but that was a good drink uh some of the ones were easy to name like the uh the watermelon drink we had i just called it watermelon sugar because mm-hmm. i love richard Brodigan. But anyways, the division bell, I named it the division bell. I don't remember when I decided to call that one the division bell, but the reason why I named that was because uh, building out a bar, I don't know if anybody knows, it's really stressful, especially uh, when your construction uh, guy is an idiot and uh, you run out of money and all that sort of stuff. How much were you physically involved in that, like, I was i was almost the foreman by the end of it <laughs> uh it was but it was really fun too like mm-hmm. i i did some construction work back in the day and things like that but it was kind of fun we made a lot of it up as uh as we go my uh ex-partner he had a lot of he had some good ideas like what he did upstairs was pretty that was pretty much all him but the rest like I, the bar design was fun because that space was so strange and I still still am amazed that I got all the things I wanted in, out of that. And I think mm-hmm. I got to say I did a real good job designing that bar because it was like a small little thing. I had some good ideas. I really, really loved that bar. But anyways, uh, the division bell finally had like almost – it was pretty much built out. The only thing that we needed to do mostly was just stain about 400 square feet of wood several times. Oh, you my know? God. So after the workday was over and the construction workers left and it was just me – I would just—it was so peaceful. I would just go over to the bodega, get a six-pack of beer, just maybe smoke a little doobie, and play and play <laughs> uh, music, and just peacefully just stain, stain, stain. And the album that I listened to the most, doing that, was the Division Bell by mm-hmm. Pink Floyd. It's just I, to this day I love that album. It's one of their more obscure ones. I don't know anybody else who ever actually talks for about Pink that. Floyd. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> but I still love that album to this day. I still love. it. I was it. listening uh, to it last night. I figured yeah. we
0: might chat about the Division Bell today, and I was listening to it last night,
1: and all... it's dreamy. It's really dreamy. Like. It's one of my favorite Fort Tilden when you're out there, uh, like, maybe on little mushrooms looking at the ocean. Mm -hmm. It's a real good album for that. I like the albums of that era.
0: You don't tend to get this a lot anymore, where the first track, it's something like five, six minutes long, Mm -hmm. just instrumental. Mm -hmm. It's kind of, to me, like, you know, that opening sequence to the movie Magnolia, which has nothing to do with the movie, but also kind of everything to do with the movie, like... We don't do that anymore where we say, you know what? I'm going to take artistic license. You're going to bear with us yeah. here. We're going to set the yeah. thing up. Yeah. Now it's like everything has to be instant and yeah. now yeah, in 30 I'm, seconds. I'm, I'm a
1: huge believer in big intros, you know? Yeah, And I like the other one type of music that I really like is music that gives me an essence of space opening. And like Pink Floyd makes you feel like you're floating away, you Yeah. Know? Like I always, like Radiohead is another band who does that. 100%. And I always say, when I ask people, I'm like, you know what I think Radiohead is? Radiohead is like, you know, the old record players where if you played the wrong, the record on the wrong speed, you got the chipmunk sound. I was like, Radiohead is Pink Floyd on the wrong speed. It's, and I mean it in the best way possible. Yeah. Like they're the two bands that just give me that big essence of just like opening, I don't know what. Well, so... Uh... You know, you're listening to that, you're listening to that album, uh, the
0: fumes are going. It sounds, uh, in every sense of the word, intoxicating.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, it it, it was a good, it was good moment. Mm-hmm. It was just really relaxing. Mm-hmm. And the soft opening, how'd
0: that go? Because ha- has there ever been a good or smooth soft uh, opening?
1: It was all right, I guess. I mean, by that point, I guess I'd been through, I'd, yeah, I'd been through the Pegu opening. We basically was in charge of the Death & Co opening, so... It was cool. You've been through yeah, them before. Yeah, I like openings. I do. Mm. That's the creative process, you know? That's when you really put your bar design to test
0: as yeah, well, exactly. right? Like You have the well, theory.
1: Well, that is definitely, you put it to test, but you real anybody opening a place, you have to realize you have a plan, but it's going to change. Mm-hmm. So you have to figure out, oh, that was the wrong plan. We need to do this. So you're constantly like, you know, changing things, thinking, oh, really should have a shelf there, you know, Mm -hmm. which pretty much you should have a shelf anywhere. You can have a (laughs) shelf in New York, you know, for the amount of size you have. Yeah. So I really love it. I Mm -hmm. like the creative process of it.
0: Another aspect of this drink, which, you know, we could have talked about others too, but that I really wanted to speak about now, uh, it just happens to be early May when we're recording this. So, you know, a lot of uh, Gavi spirit drinking is going to be happening now, but it's happening anyway, right? So like you look at the numbers. Tequila and Mezcal combined, mainly tequila. It's now the second largest spirit in the U.S. by value, behind only vodka. Uh More popular now than American whiskey, which blows my mind. So it's the
1: most popular drink with flavor. It's the most popular spirit with flavor. Well, I think
0: there's some good vodkas out there, but not the ones that are, you know, helping the numbers. Yeah. But back then, 2009, so obviously Maya Well opens as something of a shrine to agave spirits, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. How left feel was that?
1: Well, I guess – well, it was probably definitely the, uh, the first uh, – mezca- like, the idea behind it was at that time at Death & Co, we had we – had we started to go into the book menu because our menu was getting so big that uh, it was starting to be like, well, how are we going to organize it? And the best idea that I came up with was we should just make – we should do the cocktails by the spirit – like, each page is a spirit. And then, cause, and then I was like, and each page, we'll have the gin cocktails. One side of it will be gin shaken. One side will be gin stirred. Mm-hmm. So even though it'll be gigantic, uh, you know, the two questions you usually ask a customer, okay, what kind of booze do you want? And then do you feel like something's stirred and boozy or something's shaken? Smart. And that's the, so, you know, you could narrow our list down from like 50 drinks to like four mm-hmm. in two questions. So we obviously had our agave page there, and, you know, it was Death & Company, and we were probably one of the most renowned cocktail bars in the city and country, and we were probably selling almost more tequila and mezcal cocktails than any other spirit. Wow. So when uh, my former partner asked me if I wanted to open a bar, I said, yeah, I want to open a bar. And he said, what, what would you want to do? I kind of wanted to do a quirky dive bar, but I was too crazy with uh, cocktails. So I was like, we got to do the agave cocktail bar, you know, because there was some good good tequila bars back then. But what mm-hmm. most tequila bars did, they just wanted to say we had the most tequilas and, you know, make make margaritas and flavored margaritas and yeah. stuff, you know. So it so annoys me to this day that if a cocktail has tequila and they're like, oh, it's like a margarita. It's like, no, it's not a margarita, <laughs> you know, uh, and that still drives me crazy. So yeah. I really wanted to have like I, I felt like it deserved its own. Yeah. Good cocktail bar,
0: you know. And so you were one of the advocates there, I'd imagine, at Death & Code 2 as well, pushing for that page, pushing for those drinks. I imagine Brian was there at the time doing the rum thing.
1: Uh, he wasn't quite a pirate yet. No? I think that was – that might be the – Pre-pirate? That, I think that was when he was turning – I think he was a pirate embryo then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was yeah. He was definitely starting to get into tiki there. I was going into the agave. He was going into tiki, but he didn't wear face paint yet or anything. And you also, uh, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but
0: you know, very forward thinking ahead of the times with the the agave and the tequila. I also remember that before we'd ever met, actually, uh, early twenty twenty, I was trying to track you down and get a hold of you because I felt like there might be something of a martini renaissance happening and you were possibly about to start, or, or the news was out there that you were maybe going to start a um, martini bar. Now, I know that didn't work out probably for a number of reasons, the, the main one being probably the pandemic, but yeah. that was very forward. Think, everyone thinks that this trend that we're seeing right now for the martinis is post-pandemic, Yeah, but that was already happening pre-pandemic, right?
1: You know, I'm really confused about it, because uh, like Long Island Bar, we just it, we, the number of martinis that we serve after the pandemic is just insane. And I don't even I don't think I don't think it was as much like that um, before the pandemic. But you know how it's hard to remember it all blends into each other and stuff like that. Yeah. But I'm fairly certain we didn't serve that many martinis at at the bar. No, it's insane now. But I, I have somewhere an email that I think
0: was out with a publicist that might have been working with yourselves or some bar, I, I can't remember, anywhere yeah. it was like, I have this pitch, I have this idea, I think there's a martini renaissance happening right now, Yeah, was actively starting to report the story, trying to get hold of yourself, and then there we go, the pandemic yeah. happened, all bets were off, yeah. but I think that's funny, I, I had forgotten about that until last night too, when I was thinking about you know this recording here, yeah. so Phil Ward ahead of the
1: curve. Yeah, yeah. I've always loved martinis. Mm-hmm. Now I'm just obsessed with them. It's, but yeah. the idea was we were going to open a cocktail bar, but mm-hmm. I was going to have a secret gin martini menu, which Robert Simonson kind of. So that's ruined. that's how that
0: news broke, right? Yeah, yeah Simonson yeah. wrote about that. But whatever, you
1: can't argue. You can't be mad about a, a New York Times guy right? about <laughs> yeah, the bar you were a bar supposed you were about to open. To open. Yeah. I imagine that wasn't the case for my well, or was it the case at the time? Like, ooh, Jesus, it's so long ago. I we. I feel like we started getting press after we opened. Right. Because, um, yeah, because, you know, that was I remember thinking, you know, we and also we got press really fast because it was basically like the people from Death & Co mm-hmm. opening a new bar right down the street. You yeah. Know? So the press came really, really good. Like, that's what I always like to tell people, uh, you know, because there's a the whole PR question and spending money on PR. And I really, really hate PR. Those people don't live in the real world. Um So I'm always like the best PR is like press, you know, so if you do Mm -hmm. a good job, you can get press and then that's the PR that you need, you know, because I I don't even know how much, I mean, I don't know how PR works or whatever. Ah, yeah, well, that's a
0: separate conversation to have, but let's move
1: on before I offend someone. No,
0: no, no, offend as many people as you like. I I I do have
1: to say, I I do like you, Rachel Harrison, if you hear this.
0: (laughs) There you go. Uh, But I, I think that. It's, it's an interesting question, right? You get a ton of press through PR in the beginning, but if the bar doesn't back it up, it doesn't back it up, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. But then again, how many amazing bars are out there that don't have PR, that don't get written about because shock alert here, sorry as well. Most writers are lazy, and most writers want to be given the stories and don't want to come up with original ideas. Yeah, I never thought about that. That's kind of lame. Yeah, imagine you're just sitting at your desk, an email arrives, oh, I'm going to write this story. Anyway, uh, we've thrown a bit of shade here at many people. Not enough yet. I'm sure we'll throw some more. Um, Let's get into the ingredients now in the preparation of the drink. Okay. Um, This does tie into that conversation of the popularity of tequila and mezcal at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you made this... Was it always originally with Delma Gay Vita? It was. Mm-hmm. And actually, no, not with
1: Vida. Because uh, Vida didn't exist at the exactly, time. Exactly. I got to back up. Uh, we actually were using um, San Luis del Rio, um, which is the palenque where they make Vida down the road. Uh, but Ron Cooper heard about the bar, and uh, he gave me a deal. Because the problem was that the, the Streamline, like the San Luis del Rio... Chichicapa and San Diego or Santo Domingo at that time were about $55 a bottle uh, at cost. And that's just, you know, you can't put mm-hmm. two ounces or. So actually, I might have to back up here because the division bell was actually one ounce of San Luis del Rio to start. And then it became one and a half Vita when we got the Vita. Right. And that makes sense, too. Yeah. Yeah, because the the, the San Luis del Rio is so much bigger and louder anyways. You really didn't... I mean, it would probably be perfectly good with an ounce and a half in, but Mm -hmm. the price point just wasn't right.
0: That's also a question, you know, like Vita not existing... A drink that would come along a couple of years after this, the Naked and Famous, we mentioned it before. I know the original recipe for that is Chichicapa. Yeah. And again, like well, we, that's we,
1: expensive. Uh, would... <laughs> well, we kind of, uh, we we didn't exactly operate on a budget when we first opened Death & Co. <laughs> it was great. We were using like El Tesoro as our well. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, we were using real good sauce there. I, I think Brian Miller's told me as well before that they used to put a uh,
0: stag in yeah. a certain drink. Yeah, and what what was in, that was oh,
1: oh, uh, really, really good drink name. Cure for pain. Yeah, that was we used a half ounce of stag in that George T stag. Yeah, <laughs> run but you a you couple know, thousand dollars these days. A yeah, bottle. yeah, exactly. But I remember. Yeah, I remember we all ran over to the Broadway Panhandle or Broadway uh, Warehouse there by Astor Place one time. Because I think it was Don and John again, they found the some of the, the series there, and they were like $60. We all ran over there and grabbed the, some Thomas Handy and some Stag and oh stuff like God. that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was a bounty. Yeah, that was, that was a really good drink, though. Mm-hmm. It was like, uh, what was it? It was like an ounce and a half of rye, half an ounce of Stag, Campari, and he put a little, just a smidge of cacao in it. And I don't remember what the bitters were. It was a real good drink. And it was also, like, a really good drink name, too. Yeah. <laughs> as, as we know, Mr. Sentimental Journey, uh, Brian has some really bad drink names sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> He's a sentimental soul. Um, these
0: days, all right, so fast forward, you know, Mezcal's wildly popular now, tequila even more so. Um, I'm not going to ask you to commit to one, but if you are looking for, like, Price Point or ABV um, for a well... Mezcal, what are you looking for these days? Uh you mean you can feel free to feel free to name like this feel free to name a brand. I just don't want to put anyone under pressure here to yeah. to, to promote anything they might know, you know.
1: Well no, it's just a matter of uh it's just the best thing you can get for the price. Mm-hmm. You know? And there's some other ones out there now. Um the uh what was it called? We used it at uh Chevella's something, Amigo what the hell is it called? And I don't mean Casa Amigos for God's sake. <laughs> uh I forget the peloton is pretty pretty good for peloton the price. De la muerte, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just it's it's not going to be a bottle that blows your mind. No, you know, it's just something that's has to hold up in a drink. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like Vita does that pretty well. And I'm also just really, my heart loves Delmague. You know, like I've been to that Palenque like twelve thirteen times, and those families are like the sweetest nicest people. You actually like believe in humankind when you're in a Zapotec village in Oaxaca. Wow.
0: Yeah, It's on the bucket list for me. Yeah. I'm looking at the other ingredients here, and they kind of speak for themselves, or we've already covered them. Aperol, maraschino, lime juice. Um, anything you want to say on any of those fronts?
1: Uh, not really. There's nothing really that much to say. I will say, though, that it is garnished with a discarded grapefruit twist. So, twist, And I think the mm-hmm. grapefruit twist is one of the finer garnishes on the planet. And
0: we were actually talking about this recently with Patty and Ally, uh, and they were like, "That's a, that's a classic Phil Ward thing." Yeah, I love the I, grapefruit. You do it in your martini, I
1: believe, as well. I have several martinis. I like to do it with. Mm-hmm. It's really great, especially if you do. Uh, if you do a one of my favorite martinis that I make right now is. Uh, it doesn't really have a name. I started calling it a another martini because we have the stupid a martini on our menu, but it's <laughs> just uh, three ounces of gin, half. Um, Carpano Bianco and uh, orange bitters with a grapefruit twist. It's almost like a refreshing martini. Doesn't make sense. Wow! And the grapefruit twist—that's that's, that's the—it's the—it's
0: one of many, but it's a Phil Ward calling card right mm-hmm. there. I don't think I invented it though. I think no,
1: what? no. Somebody asked for a, a martini with a grapefruit twist one time. I kind of feel like it was an English bartender. I can't remember his name when he was in Pegu Club. Mm-hmm. So I can't claim that I invented it. But you've you've adopted it. Since. I've adopted it.
0: Um, preferred. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna run through the the, the specs again here. One and a half ounces mezcal, Vida. These days. Yep. Um, you will see it printed a lot out there. One and a quarter. But I'm really I'm happy to confirm. One. And I've a never half put here. one and a quarter anything in a drink before. I think someone printed it once and everyone's run with it because I see that recipe everywhere and that's why yep. I wanted to check. Three quarter apérol, half an ounce maraschino, three quarter fresh lime. Talk us through your, if you're making this at the
1: bar right now. Uh, well, I actually am a bad bartender because technically you're supposed to start with the uh, the cheapest ingredient, which would be the lime juice. But um, I don't know. I've always I've always liked to put the booze in first, just it kind of just like kind of like I don't know. It gets me and gets me in the. The seat of what's happening and stuff like the, that. in the zone. Now. Yeah, something like that. So, But I'm also a good bartender, so I never mess up the drinks. So I never wind up wasting the booze, Toby. <laughs> um, but anyways, no, there's no nothing really crazy about it. You just put the things in a shaker and mm-hmm. you know, put some ice in there and you shake it and you strain it into a cocktail Single glass. Single strain? Single strain. Yeah, I'm still, I'm an old man. I'm not into this double straining thing. Preferred glassware? Coop. Uh, Coop. This yeah. would be too big for a Nick and Nora. We're at what three were, and a half ounces? It would be. It would. Be, you could maybe jam uh, jam it in Nick and Nora. It'd be a little sloppy though, because nice. like we have those big coupes at uh, Lib, and that kind of looks almost just too small of a wash line, but it it it's okay. Mm-hmm. Any final thoughts about the division bell today? Uh, well, I did. I, I me and my chef from Lib, we were in uh, we were in Europe last May and we were uh we were just like man I just want a goddamn martini you know and there's nothing that makes me feel like an american like being out of the country and wanting to find a bar where I can just go in sit down at a bar and order a drink you know a lot of times there's no ch- there's no stools or you have to sit at a table and talk to a waiter and we were in florence and we were like scouring the internet and asking people where can we just find a bar to sit at we finally found this bar And we sat down. We ordered martinis. The martinis were fine. But we're sitting there. and There's only four bar stools. We're sitting in two. There's two people in the other one. And this kid orders a division bell. No. (laughs) Yes. We're like, what is happening? And Kevin was like about to say something. I was like, shut up. Shut the fuck up, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> so he seemed like he was a little bit of a drink nerd because then after that he ordered a Naked and Famous. I was like, what is this guy? I guess we might have heard that he was like a cocktail writer or something, but that was really funny. I wonder if he had the
0: paper plane before he had the division yeah, bell yeah. too, so he was just going yeah, through them all.
1: We only heard two cocktail orders.
0: <laughs> but the division bell came first. Then came the Naked and Famous. There we go. It did. There and in time. Right. There we go. (laughs) Um, I got another question for you here before we move into the final questions of the show. Okay. Because I think it will be very interesting for the people that listen to this show who are in the trade and maybe younger bartenders and thinking about things. Are you Um, calling me old? Uh, no, seasoned. <laughs> Experience. That, sound, that
1: sounds even worse. Does it? So Yeah, it makes me sound old
0: and used. No, seasoned. Not just old. A seasoned bartender. No, you know, wily. Um, I like that. So you're at Long Island Bar now. Mm-hmm. Well, now I'm here right now. You're working at Long Island Bar these days. Yes. Uh, and have been for a while. There's a lot of amazing talent behind that bar there, too. Many people who also own bars or could easily run their own bars. Um, we spoke about that, you know, the the martini menu thing in that space, uh, and you had Maya well before. How do you feel about that bar ownership and, and and you know, because you could be doing that, so why be back behind the bar? And I don't say that, I hope that that doesn't come across in any way, like, oh, denigrate, no, no, I'm, like, I'm very no, curious. No,
1: it's a fair question. Uh, when Arturo approached me, like, uh, you know, a year or so before the, the pandemic and told me, uh, you know, he was interested in opening a bar, this and that. It had been probably, I don't know, well's probably been closed like three years or something like that. Uh, I talked to him, super nice guy. Space seemed right, three blocks from my house. And I was like, yeah, you know, I think I had the energy. I was like, all right, I think maybe I will do that. Because like, even when I was at BioWell. And we were still opening. I started bartending anyways at other bars. Really? Yeah, because it's just like you can't bartend at your own bar because you're like sitting there and you're like thinking like somebody's asking you about cocktails and you want to be like, "Come, uh, shut up. I'm trying to see what's going on over here, you know, things like that. It just wasn't as enjoyable. And then you have the whole stupid tip pull thing where you can't take tips. And that's not the worst thing, but it just screws up the scheduling. Because then whatever bartender is working with you on Tuesday is making, like, way more than the bartender does on Wednesday, and it's not good for morale and things like that. Got it. Um, What,
0: because people would come to that bar because you're there that day? Well, no,
1: just because if I didn't take a tip, then the the person on Tuesday would make so much more than the person on Wednesday, and it's just not good. Got it. Um, So I really miss bartending. It's weird because I really dislike people, but I (laughs) I, love—I always think of, like— I think of bartending kind of as my therapy or something where I actually like interact with people. I don't know why or what it is, but I just really love bartending. Uh, and there's probably been nowhere that I ever loved bartending uh, as much as Long Island Bar. It's just mm-hmm. that place. It's a beautiful room. It just has a vibe to it. I don't know what it is. The best things are inexplicable in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah. Uh, so I just love working at that bar. So when I decided to do that thing with Arturo... I was just like, God almighty, it's so hard to leave Long Island Bar. Uh, so then what I did was I told Arturo, I was like, I'm keeping one day at Long Island Bar. I'm going to keep Sunday. So the deal was that was that I was going to help him manage Chevella's, his very, very busy, very good restaurant in uh, Crown Heights uh, for like three months, I think we estimated, while we finished the build-out of the bar. Mm-hmm. Back to really good construction workers, build-out very delayed probably managed that place for i probably almost a year before the old uh, pandemic hit so I wound up managing that restaurant for like two years so uh, by the time we could open the bar I'm like you know I don't think I don't think I want to do a bar right now and also I'd been back I'd started working at uh Long Island bar again because I was like at one point I was like Arturo I was like he knew I didn't want to manage I told him that like yeah. right like when we first spoke he wanted me to like be the GM of our of Chavella's and run the cocktail bar I was like I do not want to be a manager mm-hmm. uh and if I was the GM here I'd have no time to do that mm-hmm. um so he understood that so eventually into the pandemic I you know I was still working 5 days I was like Arturo I got to go down to like 3 days I can't do this anymore Uh, And then by the time the bar did open, I was like done managing it all because I was down to three days and Long Island bar reopened and then I took like a day or two there and then I got tired of even doing those three days. So I was just doing like the bar program and was working at Long Island bar like three, four days. So by the time it was time that we could open it, I th- just feel like I blew all the energy I had to open a place, like managing a restaurant for two years, and then I was already back at the place I love, so I was just like, I-, I can't do this. It just felt right. Yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Final question here
0: for you before we move into our weekly final que- five okay. recurring questions. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if this works for U.S. sports, but in soccer, there's there's always this discussion like do soccer players end up becoming good coaches, right? Because you might have a star. Yeah, absolutely. And then I'm familiar with the idea. Cool. So do great bartenders make great bar managers or is it not? Do you know what I mean? It's case by case. Case by case. Just like like sports players. So it's not a given. No, absolutely not.
1: Absolutely not. Yeah, some people
0: are good at it. Some people aren't. Mm Mm-hmm interesting no again i say that as well for the the younger folks maybe starting yeah. out thinking about what they're going to do no it's
1: just like it's almost an extension of you know people are you know oh i'm a master mixologist i was like i want to throw you behind a bar on a friday night and see if you can actually be a master mixologist back there you know mm-hmm. like it's a totally different thing making drinks and tending a bar yeah Or you might be an expert at cost, at management, at people management, but you might not be able to jigger anything. Totally, totally. That's why, like, that makes me think of, like, uh, Julie and Susan, who own Clover and Flatiron and all those, because they're a perfect team, because Julie, although her personality is questionable, she does work well in front of the house, and she's good with drinks and things like that. And Sue's, like, super genius behind it with numbers and things like that, and she's so very, very nice. That. So they're a good team. <laughs> Balance
0: each other out. Yeah, exactly. Nice. All right, Phil, we're going to ask them to you. We're coming at this blind because I don't have the questions in front of me, okay. but we've been doing this long okay. enough, I feel like. We we can do this. And the question number one for you today, which spirit or category of spirits typically enjoys the most real estate on your
1: back bars? Well, technically, I don't have a back bar. Uh, when I did have a back bar, all my own last, it was Mezcal, obviously. But I feel like there's a place, you know, a good a good back bar... Uh, you know, there. Are, I would say mezcal and tequila, like agave spirits, you know, but mm-hmm. I think the important thing is like on your back bar, I always said, you know, the, the people will try to sell you stuff to have on your back bar. They'll even try to pay you to have it on their back bar. And I'm always just like, your back bar is your integrity. You shouldn't mm-hmm. have anything on your back bar that you're not comfortable selling. Part B to this question that we don't normally ask,
0: but I'm interested in your take, which style or category of spirits do you think you kind of need to have the most of from a cocktail perspective?
1: Mm, you know, I don't think, well, I don't think it would be one in that case. You need a lot. You need a very... Uh, exactly. So like, I'm guessing maybe rum, like you I mean, you, you rum, generally need what, like two, three
0: rums minimum for... for eh, like, co- well,
1: you know, I kind of feel like well, rum might be almost the most complex... Yeah. Spirit after mezcal, you know, cuz it's made in over 60 countries. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's very the flavors are very pronounced, you know. It's like like American whiskey, I just find it so boring. The nuances are so small and things like that. Yeah. You get into scotch, it gets a little more interesting, you mm-hmm. know, with the peat and the different right. different things, but but besides mezcal, I kind of feel like rum is the one that talks the loudest a, in different languages. Yeah. Super fascinating
0: category of spirits there. All right. Question number two: Which ingredient or tool do you believe is the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Hmm.
1: Well, I kind of feel like fortified wine. It's a great time for fortified wine right now. There's so many good fortified wines. Like I remember when we, when I started working at Flatiron or like, or. Death & Co., like there just weren't that many good fortified wines yet. Mm-hmm. And they just, Sherry, Sherry's another one, which is a fortified wine. Mm-hmm. Uh, me and Katie, my uh, ex-girlfriend, we thought about, we tried to open a Sherry cocktail bar for a while. It just never never happened. That should happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, Sherry, fortified wines, things like that, there's just such a good array of them. mm mm-hmm. A lot of, and and, you know, speak about complexity there as well and just range and whatnot. Yeah, there's well, the thing that's neat, particularly about sherry, which fascinated me sherry can be be the base of a cocktail, it can be used traditionally like a vermouth, or it can be used like a liqueur. You know, there's just so many ways to use it and so many different kinds. I'm going to give another part B to this question because, uh, how do you feel
0: about the OXO, the good grips? Oxo knife, the the oyster
1: knife. What? Which, which one? So Toby, are you talking about on, the one that he's using as an ice pick? He uses for everything. Oh yeah, uh, I haven't really given it much thought. No, Though every time I, uh, we have the big cubes there, and we've had that in there for like. I don't know, months now. And every time you're like, the only time I think about it is when I'm trying to split the cubes up and all I'm thinking is, why don't we have a goddamn ice pick? <laughs> so he gave that answer. And I'm telling you, I went out and bought one. I'm like, what's so good
0: about this damn knife? Yeah. Nothing. It's garbage. Doesn't open packages. Anyway, I, I've told Toby that. I've told Toby that live on air. It's a bad suggestion. But yeah. he said it's, he he says it's everywhere at Long Island He Park. doesn't listen real well. Mm-hmm. Well... <laughs> Question number three, speaking of which, what's the most important piece of advice you've received
1: while working in this industry? Hmm. That's a hard one. That's a real hard one. Uh, the two that pop into mind are uh, there's nothing as, meh, you know, I don't know. I don't really. It's a weird question. And it's like when people say to you, What's the craziest thing that ever happened when you're bartending? You know there was lots of things, but it's just when you try to think of all of them, it just nothing comes to mind. Nothing comes to
0: mind. Maybe this is a bit personal, but what's a a mantra or maybe a philosophy, thinking you live by? What's the aphorism? Hmm.
1: There are lots of aphorisms, but they're not coming to clear. One thing that I do, like not what somebody told me, but one thing that's always stuck with me all these years uh, is watching how Jolie manage Flatiron, like, you know, she was manager, she bartended sometimes, uh, but she was, had her hands on everything, you know, and the good thing that I learned from her was like, if the manager does more things and actually works, then they can have less staff there. And then less staff means people make more money. And when people make more money, they do a better job and they're happier and things like that. And I've always, I've always had that in my head, like forever. And anytime I do manage, you really do want to do stuff. Because if not, you're just sitting around with your thumb up your bum watching the clock or trying to convince yourself you're doing real work in the office while you're just scrolling porn or something, you know? Uh, so that, that's always stuck with me. Audrey always said, uh, I think Audrey said these two things, that uh, there's nothing as complex as simplicity, which I truly, truly believe. And uh, that's good. She said less is more. She definitely said less is more. The n- nothing as complex as simplicity, that could have been somebody else. That's good, I'm stealing that that one. But those are real, real mantras, uh, real mantras for me when I'm making drinks, because I make very simple drinks, always have made very simple drinks. Nice, well we got there, I Uh, I think we got a lot there, we got like two or three there. Yeah,
0: okay. Question number four. Okay. If you could
1: only drink at one last bar in your life, what would it be? Perry de Souffre in Guadalajara. I discovered Perry du Souffre, well, Ryan Fitzgerald, me, Ryan Fitzgerald, and uh, Misty Kalkoff, and we'd We've been to Mexico a lot together, and uh, me and Misty were going to Guadalajara, and Ryan had been there a few months before, and he told us about this mezcal bar that he went to called Pere de Soufraire, and by this, at this point, probably 90 percent, maybe even more percent of the mezcals that we'd tasted, Misty and I and uh, most people, had been from Oaxaca, so we go, we find this place called Pere de Soufraire, you walk in. It's a, it's, a, it's, a really, it's a nice place, but it's a nothing place, you know, like a big mural of a bus on the wall, very simple back bar with some bottles. Uh, they didn't even have a kitchen then. I think they just sold tamales and peanuts. Um, but we go in there, and this guy, Pedro Jimenez, who's also just, he's become a friend, and he's kind of the nicest man in the world, he'd started going to get, like, all kinds of racias and mezcals from Jalisco and Michoacan. And uh, and just it blew our minds. I think we got there early. I think we got there at like 6 o'clock or something, and there was nobody there yet, and we just start drinking. Pedro was there, so I think we started talking to Pedro. And uh, as the night went on, it started to fill up a little more, and then the music started. And then the music started, and all the dancing started. It's the greatest—it's like— he has really good DJs every night, and the dancing is just—it's—it's it's just unbelievable. I remember about the, think about the fifth or sixth time I was there, just euphoria. And I said, Pedro, I want you to know two things. I was like Forrest Gump's mom was wrong because life isn't like a box of chocolates. It's, it's like a mezcal at of Frere because you just don't know what you're gonna get. And then two, I was like, I think this is my favorite bar in the world. <laughs> nice. And uh, it's just great. It's just beautiful it's just like the music's great the dancing's great the mezcal's great pedro's such a good guy he's become real successful um he's he uh there's a really good um uh what is it called damn it really good uh really good coffee scene uh guadalajara crazy good um and he fell in with a couple why am i not thinking the name of this place Anyways, he wound up opening a, a place next door called De La Al, which is just so great. It's like an all day cafe, restaurant, bar. Um so he's doing real well. He's also they started bottling all the stuff he was selling at Paradise Sofrer, that's what Mazante is. Like oh. you've you know Mazante. So nice. that, that's 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 Mazante is Pedro huh. and all his mezcals from like Jalisco and Michoacan, other places now.
0: And and the name, are we talking the verb parar, like to stop? So is it like stop suffering or is it, it like to it is, suffer? It
1: means to the end of suffering. To the end which of suffering. just makes so. it that much better.
0: Yeah, brindamo. Yeah. Para. Yep. Nice. Uh, and it reminds me of that drink earlier. What was it, the stag one? Anyway, similar. Um, oh, the right. cure for pain. Cure for pain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly, yeah. Um, final question for you today, Phil Ward if you could only drink one last cocktail in your life, what would you order or make? Well, I would definitely make it
1: myself. <laughs> and it would be a gin martini. Gin martini. Tell us about Phil's gin martini. It depends on his mood. Mm-hmm. He's moody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a
0: lot of people listening to this show that know you are like, yeah, just yeah. nodding. Um... All right, drier or wetter side of things? Uh, if
1: it was the last one, it would probably be drier. Super dry. But there'd still be vermouth in there. Yeah, yeah. It would probably be about four ounces to a half. No, mm-hmm. really, if it's my last martini, I might, I'd, it'd be a birdbath martini. It'd be like five to one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Honestly. I'm speaking in ounces, not measurements <laughs> or parts. Nice. Phil.
0: I know you got a busy schedule today, packed packed appointments. Yeah. Lots of things to do. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us in the studio. It's been a blast. Okay. For the record, I owed him this. (laughs) (laughs) This has been years in the making, many failed bets, and uh, finally won. Finally we got there. Yeah. Cheers, Phil. All right. Thanks. Okay. I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher, and please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout-out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Malin, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listeners, for making it this far, and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.